If you could turn to Hosea chapter 10. Hosea chapter 10. Hosea is the first of the somewhat inaccurately named minor prophets. So if you're looking in your Old Testament, that's near the end of the Old Testament, almost to the New Testament. It's the book of Hosea chapter 10. And as you can pretty much gather by the fact that, you know, we're in chapter 10 of Hosea, we've been in Hosea a little while. So I just need to do a little bit of review so that you can understand where we are right now. Hosea speaks at a time when the people of Israel, which is a northern kingdom that's uh, kind of been separated from the southern kingdom for for a couple of hundred years, they're almost facing destruction. They're almost at the cusp of the end of their time. And the minor prophets are sent to talk about the ways in which the people of God have lost the plot. They've forgotten the God that they love and have started to go after things that aren't the real God. They've started to develop false gods, and because they've developed false gods, they've started to worship idols. And into that situation, God calls a godly man, a guy by the name of Hosea, as you can tell by the title of the book, a guy by the name of Hosea, and he's called to marry a woman named Gomer, who he knows for a fact, because God has told him, will not be faithful to him. And this is an image of the way God feels about the situation he has with his people, Israel. A people he called in goodness to be his people. You will, shall be my people and I shall be your God. Kind of close, intimate relationship. And instead of actually following after God, they walked away. Like an unfaithful spouse, they've turned away to other things. To their own destruction, but also to the spurning of God. Now last week, or last month, when I preached the last time in Hosea, I had to talk about the wrath of God. And this is important, and it's important that you remember this for context. What I tried to open up is that the wrath of God is not a bad thing. We have a God who cares deeply about goodness. We have a God who ultimately will bring about ultimate goodness. And yes, that means that he has a settled anger and hatred of evil. Now, that sounds like bad news to us, Uh, If I'm going to be charitable about it, it sounds like bad news to us because other people might, it sounds bad that other people might face negative things. If I'm going to be uncharitable, it's because we don't like to to believe that fact because, well, if God is wrathful and you are honest about yourself in the worst times of your day, if God's wrathful, he's going to be wrathful against you. Because I know when I look at myself in the mirror, when I know the ways that I have denied God from time to time, the way I've hurt other people, the way I've ignored the needs around me, often with weird things that I say in my head, no, he doesn't really need my help. The government can help him. Somebody else can help him. He's just lazy. I, I can say those things in my head to try and convince myself 
that God hasn't placed people in my life that I need to help. And if, I, if I'm accurate about that and I see the wrath of God, I recognize that God would need to have wrath against me. But it's important to remember this for another reason when it comes to the book of Hosea, that God has a settled hatred of evil. As I told you, the main point of the book of Hosea and all of the minor prophets is the question of idolatry. The question of placing an alternate God in the place of God. Being unfaithful to the real God for the sake of, well, essentially a God you create in your own imagination. And this is a bad thing for us because, honestly, idols will never fulfill us. This is a standard trope when you're speaking from a pulpit. People will tell you all the time, it's bad for you to believe in idols. And that's true. Having faith in idols will lead you astray and it will lead you to put value in things that will never satisfy. But there's something worse than that. Idols aren't only bad for you, they're just bad. And I, I say that with some trepidation because we as a people have trouble understanding the concept of evil and that evil is a real thing independent of, its, of the way it affects us. Evil is evil even if we think, even if we end up with good ends to it. It doesn't matter if the, if the end results seem good ultimately, at least to us. Things can still be wrong. Idolatry is not only a bad idea, like, you know, eating tons and tons of bacon because it'll be bad for your health. Idolatry is bad in the sense that it's evil, it's wrong. And think back to the image I told you about that God gave the people of Israel. Imagine uh, a faithful, a loving spouse, the ultimate object, the ultimate idea you get of good husband or good wife. And then imagine the spouse that turns away from them, that cheats on them, and that pretends then that this valuable, ultimately amazing spouse is valueless. I don't know about you, I get a kind of anger in my heart when I see that kind of thing, when I see people treating people I know who deserve so much better badly. But that's just a small inkling of what God is trying to say idolatry is to him. Now, before I go too far into this, I need to kind of give you a bit of a warning about the text we're in today. The text we're in today, Hosea chapter 10, verses 1 to 8, is not the most uplifting passage in scripture, I'm not going to lie. But also, as we look into it, I want you to be careful as I pick it apart and as I show you the things in it, this is a diagnostic. It's designed to show you something in your own heart that you need to deal with, something in my own heart that I need to deal with. So be careful as we go through this that you don't, after each of the things I say about idols that I think we we see here in Hosea chapter 10, that you don't suddenly just say in your head, well, I'm I'm doing that thing and that's bad, so I'm going to bone up and do better. 
When I say that, for example, idols are made from the blessings of God, you'll say, okay, well, I'm not going to have any idols. I'll turn away all the blessings of God. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not aiming to make you try to come up with your own things. There are going to be two applications at the end of the sermon, but please let the passage sit on your heart as we go through this. Let it sit. Let it deal with you. Because this is important. You see, the text says uh, probably two things, and I'll say this at the beginning because I may have to finish quickly because I, I talk too much. First of all, your idols are going to fall. They are. That's the ultimate point of Hosea chapter 10, verses 1 to 8. Your idols will not survive the wrath of God. They will not survive the presence of a God, of the true God. False gods do not remain in the presence of the true God. Your idols will fail you. Your idols will fail generally, and that's all idols. I can say that generally because every idol in the universe eventually will fail. There will come a time when we will stand before the throne of God above, and there will be no more idols. And here's the second part. The question is going to be, how are we going to react? Idols will fail you. Idols will fail generally. How will you react? Will you, at the end of time, faced with the failure of the idols around you, standing in the wreckage of your false gods, Will you be mourning that day? Or will you be rejoicing that day? And friends, there are very few questions more important than that. So let's turn to the text. So I've got four things that you're going to see in the text from Hosea chapter 10, verses 1 to to 8. Hosea begins... Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their pillars and destroy their pillars. You see, idols are made from the blessings of God. That's where idols come from. What happens is that your your false God, the thing that you love more than anything that isn't the true God, when when mixed with the blessings of God, creates an idol. That's what we mean, by the way, when when we say we idolize something. It means that we've turned something from a good gift, a good thing that we see, into something that we think is a manifestation of our false God. Something that we think will fulfill us, and it can't. In in the time of Israel, they had a golden calf, but an idol isn't just a thing we knowingly call a God. Um... It can be made from anything. We can idolize 
almost anything. Uh, I was talking to the guy on video before this, and we were talking about how weird it is that we have something called American Idol. We have TV shows designed to create idols out of people. But we can idolize anything. You can idolize money. You can idolize your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your parents, your children, your church, your preacher, your theology, your politics. That's a really common one nowadays. The poor, the marginalized, the strong, the rich. And some of these things are good. Don't get me wrong. These are good gifts that God gives us. God gives us solid churches to be part of. God gives us family that we might be loved. God gives us politics that we might be ruled well by people around us. God creates governments. But friends, let's be careful. These good gifts can be twisted fairly easily. If we love, if we love money then money becomes a god to us. And this false god becomes some kind of monster. We imagine that money can fulfill all of our goals. If only I won the lottery, then everything would be fine in my life. Do you know how many people actually get their lives destroyed by winning the lottery? Look it up sometime. It's, it's pretty harrowing. If only I had a girlfriend, then I would be fully acceptable to people around me. I would know that I'm loved and I'm accepted. And anybody who's ever had a girlfriend or a boyfriend knows that isn't the case. If only the government did the right things. If only they followed the policies I think are correct. Then our society would be perfect. Friends, history is painted with utopian people who figured that their, their political system would work. And before you think I'm talking about your political opponents, I'm talking about your politics too. Any politics, when it's raised to the level of God, will become corrupted. It will become an idol. It will become a delusional fulfillment of your false god. Shailen in his rap song, yes, I listened to rap, I know I don't look like that. It has this great line in his song, False Teachers. If you come to Jesus for money, then he's not your God. Money is. That line could be said about a lot of things. If you come to Jesus for fulfillment, and only fulfillment, then Jesus isn't your God. Fulfillment is your God. If you come to Jesus to have a nice marriage or a nice family, then marriage and family are your God, not Jesus. And the worst part is, again, to reiterate something I said at the beginning, it's not merely that idolatry is a a bad idea. It's also an affront to God. Imagine, we have a God who created a universe for us, who placed us on a privileged little planet that for some reason we like destroying, placed us on this privileged little planet. He placed us in a garden 
where we could love one another, where we could be fulfilled by God. And instead of that, we follow after our own desires. We desired first the knowledge of good and evil through our father Adam. But nowadays we've got all sorts of things that we pretend are more important than the God of the universe. I hate to say it, I'm a Canadian, I I love hockey like the next one. But you know, some of us actually put hockey on a higher plane than the God of the universe. I mean, if you thought about it for a second, that's funny if it isn't, wasn't so tragic. We put all sorts of things in the place that God is supposed to be placed. And that's not merely a bad idea for us. That's blasphemy. That's turning to the God of the universe who loves us, who created us, who is more glorious than anything we could ever imagine. Take 20 minutes and just Google all of the really cool facts about the universe we live in and recognize that the God of the universe is the God that created all of that. And then imagine how horrible it is that we put that God down for the sake of a little extra profit. Ten extra minutes in the morning of sleeping so that we don't have to read our Bibles? I don't know how to get... (laughs) I, I get to tears for this. We have infinite glory offered to us. And we're okay with 15 more minutes of TV. Like I said, if it wasn't so tragic, it would be funny. And again, as I, as I said before, this is evil, and God is not neutral about evil. Sorry, I would love to be giving you a fairly uplifting sermon right now, but this, I'm, I'm bound to the text. So that was the first point. Idols are made of good gifts. It's when our false gods get added to the gifts of God that we make them into something that they're not. We make them idols. But second of all, idols make us unwilling to accept correction. Continuing on in Hosea. For now they will say we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words. With empty oaths they make covenants. Now, Just a couple of points that I noticed from a little bit of deeper study into the text here. When we're talking about having no king, that could mean he's talking that at the time that Hosea is writing, the king has been deposed. But there are a fair number of commentators who will say that what is being talked about here is the people of Israel are rejecting the concept of having anything above them. That there's anything that they are beholden to. That there's something that is reality that is more real than their own opinions. They're denying the need for authority over themselves. And not just, and I don't mean authority in the sense of, you know, like the hierarchy of the church or that kind of thing. I mean they're denying any authority like moral codes. You know what our American brothers and sisters say? You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. They're denying that too. (laughs) 
They're denying that there is a morality above their own opinion. They're actually going a little further than our postmodern friends in saying that morality is defined by what I think is right. (laughs) And the more of us that I can get to agree with me that this is right, the better that is. And the problem with that is, if you think that way, there is no way for you to ever be corrected. If I am the definition of morality, then nothing I do is ever wrong. By definition, because I am the definition of morality. So if I decide that I need to, I don't know, cheat on my taxes, that's totally okay because I'm the definition of morality. If I feel that I should punch my twin brother in the face, not a good idea, but you know what? He was asking for it. That was the, I, I could think that that's a good idea. I could think that that's a great thing. And because I'm the definition of all things good and moral and acceptable, that's right and noble. It gets much worse, but I'll leave that for a moment. And second of all, I want you to notice in verse 3 there where it says Lord. Notice in the Lord there is all caps. That means something really specific if you're reading your Bible. In a translation of the Bible, all caps Lord is what they translate from uh, for a technical term, the tetragrammaton, the actual name of God, Y-H-W-H. We don't say the vowels because God's too holy for that. He's talking about God. We do not fear Yahweh. We do not fear the King of kings and Lord of lords. And because of that, we with empty oaths, we make covenants. They do not fear God. And this is a little, another problem that we could deal with. Do you find yourself being flippant about God? I mean, just again, go back to what I was talking about a few seconds ago. We actually claim that the person we are worshiping here this morning is the creator of the universe. Not merely this building, not merely the province of Newfoundland, not merely this planet, not merely this solar system, which would take us months to travel across, actually years if you count Pluto, not merely the star systems that we're close to, which would take us eight years, if we could travel at the speed of light to get across, we are claiming that every star in the sky is held up by this God. And the people of Israel are saying, we do not fear this God. (laughs) That's crazy. We think it's nuts if you stand in front of a transport truck and say, yeah, I could totally stand in front of this transport truck and if it's coming down at me at 100 miles an hour, it doesn't matter, I could just stand there. That's crazy. 
Imagine how crazy it is then to tell the king of the universe, who indeed he does love you, don't get me wrong here, he does, but to tell the king of the universe who spoke light itself into existence. No, I don't fear you. Chutzpah doesn't even begin to describe that. And yet I worry, and again, this is me looking at my own heart more than other people. I find myself saying flippant things about God all the time. Oh no, I didn't take, the, I didn't take those peanuts. Honest to God. I'm invoking the king of the universe to try and pretend that I didn't steal peanuts. How flippant is that? And you see, if this text is correct, the reason I do that is because I have the same disease as the people of Israel had in that century around Hosea. I have a false god. I have created a god in my image. In, in my image, I have decided that this god isn't as scary as the real one. I mean, I, I like the the Chronicles of Narnia because it talks about Aslan, and it says Aslan is a, a lion, and you know, Lucy says, "Is he a tame lion?" That sounds rather scary. He's not safe, but he's good. And so often I think we misinterpret the true God of the universe. We imagine that the true God of the universe is our pet. He's our vending machine. He's there to validate us or to serve us. And we can be flippant about him because, you know, he'll be okay with that. We imagine that he's some kind of doting grandfather with a slight case of dementia who doesn't notice the horrible things we do to each other and to him. The people of Israel are flippant about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and that's why they give empty covenants. I know it's kind of hitting close to home right after a wedding yesterday, but... How many weddings do we have every summer in Newfoundland and Labrador that in two, three, maybe ten years, you know, they promise, I will love you till death do us part. That's a real covenant. And in a lot of cases, they even make that covenant before Almighty God. And how often are we going to break that covenant? I'm not going to say that there aren't reasons for divorce. The Bible is pretty clear there are. But friends, we are far too flippant about the covenants we make. We, we, we come to church and we imagine that church is about being, feeling fulfilled. That's why we choose which church we go to. We go to this church because we like the music or we go to this church because the preaching is really good. Sorry, by the way. We choose the churches based on how it makes us feel. Not remembering that the reason we go to church is to commune with the living God. 
the living God who gave himself for us. Oh, church, what we do here on Sunday mornings is weighty. And I worry that so often we are like the people of Israel in Hosea 10. We don't even see it. We're flippant about it. But that's not all idols do. Idols also seduce us. Look at verse 5. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Its people mourn for it. And so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over and over its glory, for it has departed from them. Just a couple of things I want you to notice here. The first, about the second line there, it talks about the calf of Beth-Avon. And that should seem a little strange to you. Because the calf that they're talking about, the calf that the northern kingdom of Samaria had called their god, they created this new god that was kind of a weird hybrid between the god of Israel and the gods of the nations around them. That calf is actually held in a place called Bethel. And that's important because Bethel means, in Hebrew, the house of God, quite literally. What Hosea is saying when he says that they, <laughs> the inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon, Avon in Hebrew means, and this is from my very high-priced, overly-priced software, wickedness, evil, futility, or destruction. They tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon, the calf of the house of wickedness, evil, futility, or destruction. So literally, what Hosea is saying is that these idolatrous priests and the people who are trembling for, the, for this calf are trembling, literally mourning the death of wickedness. They have been seduced. They have, uh, seduction is when something uses your affections and changes them so that you accept things that you wouldn't normally accept. You know that feeling you get when you were back in high school and that girl across the hall really, really seemed, she seemed really, really pretty, but she wanted you to do something, I don't know, a little dangerous, and so you decided, okay, yeah, I'll do that, because you, you, you're an idiot and you wanted to impress her. You're being seduced. It doesn't just happen in relationships. It's also part of religion. Idols seduce us. Idols make it such that we love the wrong. We desire evil things. If you want some really harrowing reading, there's a really good book by a guy named Christopher Browning called Ordinary Men. It it talks about the way that a bunch of normal guys from Germany during the Second World War got moved to Poland. And they were normal guys with normal moralities and normal thinking. And by the end of the war, they actually enjoyed hunting and torturing people to death. Like I said, harrowing reading, not for kids, but it's there. The human heart is pretty dark and can be. 
You know, the hum- uh, I think Jeremiah says, desperately wicked, who can understand it? Because the problem is, evil isn't something outside of us. Evil dwells in our hearts. That's where false gods come from. Our false gods in our hearts create idols all the time because in our hearts, we're conflicted. We have the God of the universe speaking into our lives. We have the creation of goodness. And if we're lucky, a good conscience. But we also have the ability for evil. Alexander Sholenitsyn, and I've used this quote before, in the Gulag Archipelago says it this way. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. And it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? You see, evil, idols talk to the evil in our own hearts. They give it power. They help us to believe that these are good and right things to do and to follow after. And so then, when the evil that we've come to love is defeated, we mourn. I don't really want to say this, but it is true. Friends, brothers, sisters, people I care about. If you follow down your false gods, if you keep them on the throne of your heart, not only will you oppose goodness, not only will you do wrong things, You will watch as God defeats evil in the world around you and in your own life. And you will mourn. As God does his good work in bringing the world to redemption, in bringing people away from sin, if you have in your heart the desire for a false God, you won't rejoice when God wins, you will mourn it. That's what it means when the Bible says that we are enemies of God. That's not hyperbole. Insofar as we follow false gods, insofar as our hearts seek after things that aren't God, friends, in that point, we are enemies of God. And we're willing enemies of God. Because we've been seduced. And that's what idols do. But that gets us to the fourth point and the most major point that we see throughout this passage. Look at verse 2b. The Lord will break down their idols and destroy their pillars. Second half of verse 4. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. 
Verse 6 and 7, the thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, same word, by the way, that we saw from Beth-Avon, wickedness. The high places of wickedness, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorns and thistles shall grow up on their altars. And as I said before, because all of this good stuff is happening, because wickedness is being defeated, they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Because idols will be destroyed. False gods will fall because God will make them fall. The false gods that we have in our lives someday will be defeated. The false gods that we see around us someday will be nothing more than a memory because God is a good God and he will only stand evil for so long. And the fact that we don't say praise God should cause us pause. Evil will not win. There will come a day when there will be no more evil. All the false gods, all of the idols that we have around us will be gone. I began this with a question. Do you remember the question? When your idols fall, what will you be doing? Will you be mourning their destruction? Or will you be rejoicing in the freedom given you in Christ? Because that's really the choice. Whether or not evil fails is not a decision for us. Evil will fail. The question is, which side are you going to be on? Which side am I going to be on? And friends, I'm going to be clear. The day the truth wins out... If your heart is not set on Jesus Christ, if your heart is not solidly on the King of kings and Lord of lords, when the truth comes out, you won't be ready for the truth. You won't be able to handle the truth, literally. So there are two applications for all of this. First of all, as clearly as I can say it, set your affections on God. Brothers, sisters, today, set your affections on God. He truly is glorious. He truly is the fulfillment of everything that we could ever ask or imagine. He is goodness itself. All good gifts come down from him. Set your affections on him. And I say that advisedly. That's a big 30,000 foot way of saying it. But friends, seek after the Lord. He can be found. Most of you have Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, come talk to me. I'll get you one. 
But we have the word of God in front of us. The word of God that teaches us about the truth of who he is. We don't need to go looking around for the word of God and hopefully try to find it. No, we can look into the word of God and find the God who is really there. And we can put our affections in him. We can see him for who he truly is and love him for who he truly is. We have the ability to actually follow through and be the kinds of people that God calls us to be. Part of setting our affections on Christ is going to be obeying him. But that's going to be hard. And I bet most of you, like me, are going to have trouble with that. So the second conclusion, the second application, where your affections are not correct, pray for new affections in Jesus' name. From Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 to 21. And I will give them a new heart and a new spirit I will put in them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. And here's the warning. But as for those whose heart goes after detestable things and abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. God promises to change your heart if you would only ask. So ask. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father, whoever has been born of him, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Friends, if you love God, you will love your neighbors, you will obey his commandments, but most especially when the time comes. And I say when, not if. As we stand among the ashes of our fallen idols, the wreckage of false gods, we will not be mourning. We'll be rejoicing that God has set us free from this. That we no longer have to have value in the things of this world. We can use the things of this world to worship him and not to worship our own gods. Will you put your trust in Christ, in the body broken for you, in the blood shed for you, that you might have a new heart and new affections set on the Lord? When our idols fall, will we mourn or will we rejoice? And as you answer that question in your hearts, let's pray as we turn to communion. Lord God, Some days I feel bad that I actually decided I would preach through a book of prophecy. But Lord God, thank you for the grace of you showing yourself through this, of giving us the hard words that we need, that we might put our faith in you and seek after you with all that we are. Oh God, please work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name.